I'm Margaret Feinberg, and this is the Joycast. Hello, friends. I'm so excited you're joining us for the Joycast, the hap, hap, happiest half hour of your week. Once again, I'm your host, Margaret Feinberg, who recently started cooking with spray avocado oil, and I am loving the nutty flavor it adds to the dishes I'm cooking. Well, if you haven't heard, we're spending six Joycast episodes diving into the taste and see, discovering God among butchers, bakers, and fresh food makers Bible study this summer. And I'm encouraging you to reach out to your friends, neighbors, and people who would never go to church and invite them to your front porch or home for the six-session DVD Bible study, where we're talking about all things food and faith. So each week, I'm interviewing people featured in the book alongside some amazing surprise guests. In session one, we explored the wonders of hospitality with Sarah Harmeyer of Neighbors Table. Last week, for session two, you heard from one of the premier fig farmers in the United States, Kevin Harmon. And this week, well, it's going to be yum, yum. When I was two years old, My parents were eating dinner on Merritt Island, Florida, when on a whim, they decided to purchase a small sailboat. They didn't have any idea how to operate it, but that didn't stop them from setting sail toward the Caribbean. Soon, our tiny family embarked on a maritime adventure, complete with breathtaking sunsets and colorful underwater reefs. The trip also included mechanical problems, unexpected storms, and running aground. Despite the difficulties, we all felt alive on the boat, and sailing soon became a part of our family life. Most of the islands that we visited were uninhabited, so my mom purchased food provisions well before we left, and this included cases of canned goods, bottles of vinegar and oil, and bags of rice and flour. Other than the cans of Dinty Moore's beef stew, our protein came from subsistence living on the sea, meaning we hunted daily for fresh conch to scorch, grouper to broil, and lobster to steam. Some days, we returned empty-handed. That's when Mom tried her best to spruce up canned corn and metallic-tasting green beans. In our postage stamp-sized kitchen, there was only so much that she could do. But then I remember she stumbled on the magic recipe that could salvage any meal, fresh baked bread. With eager eyes, I remember watching as she would mix together the ingredients, and I begged for just a spoonful of the raw dough. Once the bread was out of the oven, that scent of love would just waft through the cabin of the boat. My parents and I couldn't wait for the loaf just to cool enough to be able to cut with that thick yellow butter melting in. Just out of the oven bread can make you feel like you're tasting the divine. So maybe it's no wonder that Jesus' declaration, I am the bread of life, takes on a whole new meaning, one that's more textured than I ever realized before. Because in that one statement, I realized that Jesus, he was making endless statements. 
When he said, I am the bread of life, he was saying, in essence, I am your staple. I am your sustenance. I am your nourishment. I am the extraordinary in your ordinary. I am your past, your present, your future. In making this declaration, Jesus revealed himself as the seed, the grain, the sacrifice, the offering, the provision. In making this declaration, Jesus alluded to God as the creator, sustainer, life giver, and provider. Jesus didn't just choose to be the ganache or the wagyu beef or the truffles of life, but a simple, ordinary, common food. Jesus didn't announce himself as specifically pumpernickel or rye, but the bread of life. And that's one reason in researching for taste and see, I decided to find someone who is an expert on ancient grains who could unlock some of the passages of scripture regarding bread. That search led me to today's guest, Andrew McGowan, Dean and President of the Berkeley Divinity School at Yale, author of Ascetic Eucharist, Food and Drink in the Early Christian Ritual Meals. His insights will challenge you to relook at the hundreds of mentions of grain and bread throughout the Bible. So pull up a chair at our table and let's get started. Hi, Andrew. It is so great to have you on the Joycast. Thank you, Margaret. It's a delight to be here. Now, I remember when I was doing my research for Taste and See, I reached out to you, asked if I could interview you. You were gracious enough to make time for that. And then at the end of that interview, I was rather forward and asked and invited myself to come to your home and bake bread with you. And you were so incredibly gracious uh, to extend an invitation. I'm always happy to to cook with friends, Margaret. It's a great activity, just as people know that eating with friends is a, a wonderful thing, but cooking with friends is as well. So I was delighted to share that with you. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you. And that sense of community and connection that is so incredible. Now, when I went into your kitchen, you at the very center of it had the, a, a unique table I'd never seen before designed specifically for baking. Can you talk to our listeners, just a little bit about how that was designed, how it's laid out, those edges that are specialty to catch flour? Yes. Well, the, the table was originally a, um, a a machine tool table, which was recycled when this kitchen was um, renovated, which was actually before my time in the house, but a, but a wonderful table, which has some of the characteristics of a, of a butcher block, which some of your listeners might know, where you have a, a smaller piece of heavy wood, you know, on a stand or on wheels that enables you to to cut and uh, and process foods in the kitchen. But this one is really like the size of a table that could seat six or eight people, I guess. And yes, it does have a kind of rim that goes the whole way around, which may not originally have been intended to catch just flour, but whatever klutzy cooks like me might manage to try and throw off the edges. <laughs> but, it, but it certainly works particularly well for the, for the kinds of flour that I do tend to cast around it pretty generously. And I love having the room that it, it, that it affords me to, um, to really roll up my elbows and, and go at kneading and mixing and so forth. Because I have to confess that while I'm an enthusiastic cook and I take some pride in some of the things I do, that, that neatness and you know, definition 
are not necessarily among my greatest strong points. And so I, I should mention, you know, that my spouse Felicity is is a, a, a willing and a patient helper in, in that regard. And I, I try to do, I continually try to do better in that regard, as one does in so many aspects of life. But but I'm glad that I'm not the only person involved in that aspect of cooking as well. Let me ask, where did your passion for ancient grains and bread baking begin? Well, I think it's got a few different sources, to be honest. Um, my, uh, I, I'm an only child. I grew up cooking with m- my mother, uh, or at least helping in the kitchen as a kind of sous chef before I ever knew what that phrase would have meant. Um, but her mother was uh, a Scottish migrant to Australia. And um, I suppose, to be honest, the first, quote, ancient grain I ever knew about uh, were, were probably oats, you know, which they'd grown up eating in, in Scotland and perhaps had migrated to try and get to a place where they didn't need to eat quite so many of them compared to some other foods. Um, but it goes back to that sense in a way. But perhaps in my adult life, the more obvious way I came into these um, issues in a more conscious way were uh, first through my own academic study when in my PhD I was interested in the ways in which uh, ancient Christians had thought about the foods that they ate both in their uh, liturgical meals, those things we would think of as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, and uh, also how they were interested in the rest of diet and life and how they saw food and drink as a, a part of their uh, of their lives. And so as I delved into those questions, I realized that, of course, there were some of the things that they ate and had available for 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 food were not quite the same things that we're used to ourselves. So when you're dealing with the ancient world, you necessarily stumble across ancient grains if, if food and drink are part of what you're interested in. Talk to me about the life of bread and the purpose of bread in, uh, in community in, in antiquity. I think sometimes for a modern uh, reader maybe of, of, of the, the scripture, they may come upon it and see it as a... Um, as think of it like bread as an accompaniment to a meal, a small dinner roll, and yet it is so much more. Uh, absolutely. In fact, for the the inhabitants of the ancient Mediterranean, which really includes virtually everyone we encounter in the, the Bible, bread isn't a side dish. It's actually the heart of the meal. In another analogy, which is perhaps, you know, will be well known to some listeners, would be the way in which rice is very much at the heart of of cuisines of of East and South Asia, and where again, depending upon either the the economic power of 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 the diners or or the significance of the occasion, you might have larger or smaller amounts of other food to eat with them. But for many people, from day to day, a regular meal is simply that that central food, be it rice or bread, and smaller amounts of highly seasoned foods uh, help to to break its monotony. But are not necessarily something that people can take for granted in large quantities. So bread, bread isn't um, a, a side dish. It's it's actually the the heart of what food and drink is. And so I think that when you when you then connect that with biblical stories like Passover or like the Last Supper or like the the feeding stories of Jesus and five thousand, then you realise that this bread thing is actually quite central to the way in which they live and work into their diet. Talk to me. I remember one of the things that really stood out to me from my time with you is your description how in our modern world, bread is a solo affair. We buy a single loaf, possibly go to the grocery store, we secure it, we procure it by ourselves. But in antiquity, it was more of a community. It was a familial effort. And that started from from 
the very first seed that went into the land. Talk to me about that. that. That's true. There are a number of ways in which bread is a communal affair. I mean, firstly, of course, as you're saying, in agriculture itself, it, agriculture is kind of a communal activity. The, the groups that it takes to to plant and to reap and then to grind and, and, and to bake, the, these are not activities that would typically be undertaken just by one person or, or a couple of people, but ideally by whole groups and communities. And the, the economics both of of growing grain and of baking bread are uh, are, are more attractive when you have groups to to reap with and groups to bake for uh, and with. So um, ovens, if you if we take that example, um, uh, ovens are, are fairly capital expensive items, and uh, they're not something that many households could afford. Uh, and so it's. Not unusual, we find in, in villages in ancient Mediterranean cultures, and indeed in some modern ones still, for the oven itself to be a communal uh, tool and, and to be associated with communal functions so that while bread might be made at homes by individuals and families, it's often taken to communal ovens for baking because the fuel and the, 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 the capital expenditure involved in actually having the technology of even a wood-fired oven is often beyond the means of an individual or a single household but actually makes uh, makes sense to as something to do together, just, just as agriculture does. It's probably easier to think of agriculture in those terms, but we tend to think of food production as such a a narrowly domestic process, don't we, that, that the idea of even a single family doing it together sounds kind of remarkably communitarian, but, but in the ancient world, even a single family might not have been a big enough community to be involved in processes of bread making. And while it might have been a daily occurrence, it, it was also, in some instances, something that was done in large quantities so that whole groups could be fed and, and so that the, the, the use of the oven and its fuel could be maximized as something that was, that was economically attractive. The bread that we read about in in the ancient text of the of the scripture, it is not primarily the white, fluffy bread that we see today. Talk to me about the actual grains that were largely being used back then, why those were um the grains that were being used, and how that had socioeconomic implications of of kind of what grain was consumed by what socioeconomic group. Yeah, sure. Certainly not not very white and fluffy much of the time at all, and, and for a few different reasons. But if we start with the grains question that you focused on, um, there are a lot of references in biblical literature, for instance, to the use of barley as a grain. And um, barley is not something that a lot of people come into contact with directly unless it's sort of in indirect forms. A lot of barley is used as animal fodder today. It's also used for, for, for brewing and distilling. But uh, you know, many people don't eat barley except in the form of, you know, those few scattered grains of, of pearl barley in a soup or something like that. But barley was uh, a staple food and a lot of bread was made from barley. It was particularly accessible to poor people. In fact, we find in biblical texts across quite a long period of time that the, the relative value of wheat and barley stays remarkably stable as about two to one. In other words, you can buy twice as much barley for the same amount as you can buy a certain amount of wheat. Uh, this is because barley is often a more hardy crop. It's it's easier to grow in marginal soils, and its its productivity in those you know, marginal soils or even other soils can be higher than wheat. But it's also not as appealing as wheat. If you've ever tried to bake bread from barley or 
from a high proportion of barley, you'll, you'll, you'll understand why. That while it's, it's tasty, uh, it doesn't have nearly as much gluten as wheat. And gluten, of course, is the thing that makes bread fluffy. So um, if you make bread from all barley, it's, it's going to be sort of a tasty brick. Um, and, and, you know, of course, there are plenty of people for whom a tasty brick sounds like a pretty good thing. I mean, when you're hungry, um, when you're hungry, when you're, when you're poor, then, you know, what's, what might be of interest could, could be different. Um, but even when people ate wheat, they didn't necessarily have access to it in the very refined forms that we may have become used to because even wheat, wheat itself, depending upon your economic power in the ancient world, and this is true until quite recently and probably is still true in some parts of the world. Uh, less refined wheat was more available to poorer people. In other words, it still had more of the, the bran and the germ and the, the, the rest of the stuff that, that richer people wanted to get rid of as they looked for their fluffier, whiter loaves. And so the bread was more solid, more stodgy and so forth. But guess what? It was probably also better for them. So this is one of the great ironies of the fluffy white loaf to which a certain kind of dietary aesthetic has tended that, you know, it's it's sort of eating our way to a, a less healthy diet uh, it would it would be better for us to eat whole grains typically rather than refined grains not to sieve out or or to sift out um the, the bran and, and so much of the, the husk and the germ and so forth but rather to just eat the whole grain so so economic power um affected both which grain you had access to wheat or barley and then it also affected the sort of grade or the or, or the coarseness of the version of the flour that you got out of the process and if you the wealthier you are the wider and the fluffier the bread gets although i doubt to be honest that if a first century palestinian would have had access to anything that looked much like wonder bread personally I, that wouldn't make me complain i'd rather have something that was a bit more solid and flavorsome now how does this understanding both of the communal nature of the bread making, the uniqueness of the grains, how would those who heard Jesus make the declaration, I am the bread of life, what would have, do you think would have gone through their minds and hearts when he made that declaration in that context? Such, such an interesting um, phrase, isn't it? Because I think that um, to say that, that Jesus is the bread of life or to hear that is really like saying that he's at at the heart of what one needs to exist. Um, saying I'm the bread of life does not just mean I taste good. It doesn't just mean you like me. Um, it, it doesn't just mean I'm nice. It means that I am the thing w without which you cannot survive because the, the original you know, hearers and readers of these words and of these texts understand bread to be the thing that they actually depend upon from day to day. And, and I think many of the people who, who hear these stories in the ancient world um, hear them in a state where they, they have something like what would be called in modern terms food insecurity. They don't necessarily know where their next uh, meal is coming from often, especially if they're city dwellers, they don't have access to growing their own food. They're dependent upon day-waged laboring. And, and they you know if they don't get that coin from that employer, then where is the bread going to come from? When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, or I'm, I'm the true bread, um, then what he's re really saying is that, you know, you think that what you need to live on is that material food. Uh, in fact, there's something, believe it or not, there's something that's even more fundamental to your existence 
than that material food that you're looking for. And, and in that same story, of course, in John chapter 6, there's this sort of ironic interchange where where he says to some of the crowd at one point, you know, you came after me, you know, um, not because you saw signs but because you had your fill of the loaves. And you can almost hear them saying, well, duh, I mean, you know, of course we did. You know, um, wouldn't, wouldn't you go after someone who could come up with a free feeding program like that when you're actually experiencing life the way we are? So, so in fact, their, their search for Jesus' miraculous capacity to feed them is an entirely reasonable and understandable thing from one point of view. And yet, you know, what we think of as reasonable and understandable, for him, he goes, he goes another layer down. You know, it's, you know how important bread is. Well, guess what? Um, that's the way to think about how important I might be, and it might be something even more important than bread. Which is still true for us today. Right. Something that we always do here on the Joycast before we conclude is get our guests a favorite recipe or dish. And I'm particularly excited to ask you because I know that you're a foodie. I've been in your kitchen. I have seen your collection of Penzi spices, your incredible utensils, all the perfectly matched. By the way, your kitchen is gorgeous. The red, the contrast, it is stunning. But what is a recipe that you would be willing to share with our listeners, well, I've I've got a recipe in mind, which is a kind of bread, but it's a, it's a quick bread because while I'm a serious bread baker, some of those processes are a little more complex than one might just be able to whiz up in the kitchen in an hour. So, I have in mind a recipe for a jalapeno cornbread, which includes both cornmeal, which is of course uh, a new world crop, the maize. That, that we call corn is not something that was uh, known to people in the ancient Mediterranean, but which also uses some some wheat flour um, and which includes some other ingredients like um, onions and peppers and um, and an egg and, and and some milk, which sort of bound together can bake up quickly into a delicious um, a sort of uh, a bread which could really be the center of a meal, but which could also be an accompaniment to something like chili or a soup or stew or something like that. So this is a, a bit of old world and new world wrapped together in one. It's also something I've tried successfully, not just with corn meal, but with um, one of those mysterious ancient grains that some people may have heard of called teff. And teff is a grain that's uh, part of the staple foods of Ethiopia. Um, and you can substitute teff for corn in this bread, and it will look rather different because it will be a delicious-looking chocolatey brown color, but it will still be a, a solid and um, helpful kind of um, meal accompaniment or meal center, depending upon what people are looking for. And for some of our listeners who are wondering, you know what, I would like to break out of using the white bleached flour and and begin exploring ancient grains. What tips or recommendations do you have for them? Okay, well, well one or two things. First, look for stone ground flours, um, which are, I think, uh, take us back to the ancient world as well as I think probably to a healthier place in terms of our eating. A stone ground flour means that the whole grain has gone into the mill and the whole grain has come out because stone mills don't create the same kind of heat that steel roller mills do. And steel roller mills, which are used for big industrial flour making, the whole bran and germ has to be stripped out just so that it doesn't become rancid. And so when we buy, you know, Graham flour, for instance, in the store, that's just white flour that they put some of the bran back into, which I don't think is really what we need. Stone ground flours 
and I won't mention any names but people of brands, but people will find it easy to identify these. Stone ground flowers give us the whole of the goodness of the grain and connect us historically to, to the ancient world if that's part of what would help people to enhance their experience of eating and their reflectiveness. And I think that let me encourage anyone who's willing to but hasn't done so just to have a go at making their own bread. You don't have to do anything particularly sophisticated with this. Just look for a simple recipe for making bread with yeast. It's something you can do with friends and family, of course. It doesn't take more than an hour or two. And the sense of satisfaction you will have with producing bread yourself and with sharing it with others is is worth any amount of time you could invest in it. So some stone ground flour, a, a bit of time, and and see what might transpire. It's, it's something which can really uh, deepen one's experience of, of food and I think of, of, of family and friendship as well. Mm, I love that and help us to connect with each other. Absolutely. I love this. Yeah. And I that recipe sounds amazing. And so for our listeners, I've got some really good news that we are going to take and post Andrew's special recipe. And by the way, anything, if Andrew invites you to dinner, you should go running. It is amazing. But what you have to do to get that recipe assembly, just log on to margaretfeinberg.com forward slash joycast. And you're going to find that whole recipe, the show notes, ways to learn more about Andrew um, through his writing and speaking and teaching and the fact that at Yale, once in a while, he even has a bread in the Bible class, which I am still waiting for you to host another one so that I can sign up. Great. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us on the Joycast. Thank you, Margaret, and congratulations on the publication of Taste and See as well. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Joycast. If you've enjoyed today's conversation and you'd like to dive deeper into the unexpected joys awaiting you around your table, check out my new book and Bible study, Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. These resources will help you savor your life, nourish your friendships, and embark on your greatest faith adventure. You can purchase them at your favorite retailer or margaretfeinbergstore.com. If you do, reach out to me on social media or my website and let me know what you think. Until we meet again, bon appetit and amen.